You're listening to Win Win, an entrepreneurial community with your host, Ben Wolf. And welcome to Win Win, the entrepreneurial community. I am Ben Wolf, as always, your host. We are going to learn from our guest today uh, how to use a coach for strategic growth. That's intentionally slanted rhyme, or however that works. But and we invite everybody to pause this for a second, leave a review, like, follow, comment, uh, whatever, all those things make the content that we're sharing here and the information accessible to more people. So I invite you all to please pause a moment, do me a favor, and do that. Uh, all right, so without further ado, I want to get into, get into introducing our guest today. Uh, he is the managing partner of RMO LLP, a trust estate and probate litigation law firm in California, Florida. Texas, Missouri, and Kansas. Uh, he's a fellow member of Strategic Coach, a coaching program founded by Dan Sullivan that I am also part of. Uh, you can find out more about him and his firm at rmolawyers.com. And with that, I give you Scott Ron. Welcome, Scott. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Did I pronounce your last name right? You did. First okay. time. Okay. could be Scott. You know, I don't know. There could be some soft A, hard A. I don't know. I get all I'm kinds sure. of it. Right. So, uh, all right. So, so before we get into to what we want to talk about today, using a coach for strategic growth, can you mind giving us like a quick two minute background so we have a little context on like who you are and how we came to be talking about this topic? Sure. So, I am the managing partner of RMO. We are a law firm specializing in probate, trust, estate litigation only. That's all we do. We do no transactional work. We do know taxes. We're litigators focused exclusively on probate disputes, inheritance disputes, inheritance disputes, um, conservatorships, and guardianships. I was about to ask you that if there's anything while well, they're still alive, also. Okay. Yep. So that's kind of the pre death inheritance side of things. Got it. Well, uh, I mean, okay. So what, what's your background? Why, how did you end up getting into law and litigation? First of all, just so we have some more context. I, yeah, I, it's non sequitur. I grew up farming in rural Wisconsin. My grandparents had a dairy farm. So I spent every summer break, every weekend, every holiday break, you know, milking cows, plowing fields, shoveling things. Uh, so it's, it's non sequitur to, to where I am today, except for you learn a work ethic. Um, you learn to put your nose to the grindstone and, and work hard, but uh, the path, you know, after high school coming from a, a blue collar rural part of the country, as I did, went to work in factories and pizza shops and doing a little bit of construction until I found my, my way to technical college and then to junior college and then the university of Wisconsin, Madison, and from there to, to law school, um, from there practicing in a small regional firm where I met my partner, Sean. He is the M in RMO. We were summer associates together, and we practiced together for a couple of years after passing the bar. And then he went on to big law, and I followed that path a couple of years later. He was a partner at Brian Cave, and I was a partner at Greenberg Traurig. Uh, and we both did that for a couple of years until it became apparent to me that big law is not necessarily interested in individual clients, which is the vast majority of people in the probate litigation space. So mm -hmm. it was, it was a, an option of choosing the firm or choosing your clients. And I chose the clients and started this firm in 2015. Sean joined me in 2016. 
And, you know, we're now moving into our ninth year going from nice. from me and in one office to nine offices in four states. And we're executing on a, a national growth plan. We think we have a, a very special mousetrap in the way that we take care of people in what is a very delicate practice area, as you can imagine, when people lose someone they love and they're faced with this chaos and uncertainty, right. you know, come in and, and help them through a very difficult time in their lives. So if there's a market that has a need for us because of our very laser-like focus, um, we want to be there. Awesome. Well, I mean, it, it's a part of the story where you mentioned going from big law to an environment where you could focus on probate litigation, individual client, probate litigation, um, that already presupposes that you wanted to do probate litigation. And that's such a specific and unusual interest, I guess. I know, I know there was a story with your grandmother or I don't know, like tell, tell me how, or tell, tell me us, how you ended up. What was the story? Why you wanted to go into that area? Why you went into that area? Maybe what happened with your grandmother? Sure. Uh, some of it's luck and happenstance, just life experience. My grandfather had passed and my grandmother was living alone on the farm that she was born and raised on. She inherited from her grandparents. And I would go and visit frequently and it would never fail that when I was there visiting, the phone would ring incessantly. And it was people, tele-scammers, I called them, who were trying to get my grandmother to donate money to whatever their cause was. Um, and, you know, she was elderly and not infirm, but certainly susceptible to being influenced and came to watch these people calling nonstop and watching my grandma write checks to them. And I just thought, you know, this just isn't right. And it always sat in the back of my mind as something that, you know, there's a large percentage of our population that falls into that same boat. So it just always stuck with me. And when I had an opportunity in the early part of my career to get my first probate case, and it was brought to me by my old mentor who said, you know, it's weird, it's probate, nobody else wants to do it. You're smart, you'll figure it out. Um, and I did, um, I kind of got a taste for it. And to be fair, I also got a taste for the community that is the probate and trust in estates community, which is frankly a really nice place to practice. We all tend to know each other. You know what people's proclivities are. You know who the good people are. You know who the, I'll say, less trustworthy people might be. Right. Uh, but but at least you you know you know who everybody is, and it's a nicer place to practice. It's still more of a profession. Um, I think some practice areas have devolved over the years to become less of a profession and more of a job, but I still think this area is, is a profession. And I think the other practitioners in this space think of it that way. And when you say profession versus job, what do you, what do you mean by that? I mean, is, is that more in the sense of, of, of just individually taking care of individual clients as opposed to systemizing, automating, I don't know, it's like that sort of thing. Or like, what do you mean by profession versus job? Yeah, I think you, I mean, I th still think as a business person, you can systematize, right? But you can't lose sight of the fact that we're serving people in this space specifically because you're dealing with loss. Either so there's sort of a dehumanization. Uh, it's maybe a strong term, but there's a dehumanization. It's not really treating people as people as much in other areas. 
Correct. And frankly, not treating yourselves or your coworkers mm. as people, right? It becomes... Well, that's and trust in the states. I know when I was in law school, that's one of the things they said about tax and trust in the states was that it, you know, it was possible not to be, you know, having these 22, 2400 hour years in those practice areas. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And you, you have the opportunity to be a human <laughs> and to be fair, the practice area requires you to be human. You're going to have a really hard time being successful in this practice area. If you can't relate to the human emotions and the human experiences that people have, whether it's on the planning side or the post-death administration of an estate or a trust, or for what we do when a dispute arises, you really have to be able to relate to your clients and their circumstances. What's the what's the motivation behind? And I, I think that this is going to be some of these questions are also going to be setting up more context for the conversation about coaching in a minute. But what's the drive behind making this firm national and, and growing so much now? Sure. Uh, I, I like to say that the trust in the state's community is filled with unicorns because there aren't a lot of people who go into this practice area as we were talking pre-show about the limited availability or opportunity that you saw coming out of law school to be in this practice area. So I like to call the trust in the state's practitioners unicorns. When it comes to trust in the state litigators, there are even fewer of us. So I affectionately refer to ourselves as Pegasus unicorns, right? We're more rare. And what I've found over the last 20 years and really over the last five to 10 in my travels around the world and throughout the country is that there is a need for people who specialize and focus solely on the litigation, because traditionally what you had in this market is you would have an estate planning lawyer who would team up with a litigator. And what I found a long time ago is that then you have two lawyers who don't want to be doing this work. You have a litigator who doesn't want to be in probate court because it has its own set of rules and it's weird and it doesn't happen the same way as a, a civil case, right? And you have an estate planner who doesn't want to go to court in the first place, right? So you have two people doing the job that one person should be able to do. And they may be more disinterested than you as a client would want them to be. So we identified this market niche and it happens to be something we love. And what I've learned in traveling around the country is that there really aren't a lot of us. So we want to be in places where people need us. I think we have a better mousetrap. I think we take better care of people, frankly. And if we can be in a market where we can help people, where we find the Pegasus unicorn, who does things the way we do things and takes care of people the way we take care of people. I think that's a value add to any community. So that's really what's driving this. So it kind of partially gets towards answering the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is that, you know, litigation and law generally is so situation specific. Each situation has its own facts. You need, you know, unique set of laws that are applicable in that situation Obviously, probate law, at least in each state, is similar within that state. But um, how do you create a national firm? I mean, this is relevant for people creating national businesses of all types. 
Um, how do you create a national firm that has consistency in the way you operate when every state has its own laws, every situation is unique? I mean, you, when you talked about values a minute ago, what, that, that maybe that's coming to, starting to answer the question, but what, how, how, do you, how do you make a national firm with any character or any similarity or any scalability with all that specificity of each situation and state? It, it starts with your core values. So we sat down, we run on the EOS platform. So we sat down as part of that practice and, and hammered out what our core values are. And it's through those four core values that we make our decisions, whether it's hiring, firing, promoting, celebrating, opening offices, and deciding what business to take, what business not to take, uh, et cetera. And it, that lens gives you clarity in making those decisions as to what you should and equally importantly should not be doing. Mm -hmm. And what I'm getting from that answer is that it's not, it's not so much about the way you practice law or any systemization or any um, standardization in the substance of what you practice. It's more like you, you get, you work with people who are aligned on vision and values goals and then I guess everybody's sort of the, the actual specifics of the practice are, are worked out by the individual people in, in the individual places. Well, people, people want autonomy, right? They want to be able to do things in their own way, right? Put their own touch on things. But at its core, you have to have core competencies, right? And people have to share common ethics, morals, ways that they do things. So what you do by creating your core values and making your decisions in and through that lens is you solidify all of those things. So you're still able to give people some autonomy so that they feel like they're invested and they have control over what they're doing, but you're hiring the right people. Before we got involved with Traction, EOS and rolled that platform out, we talked for years when people would say, when we went to market to hire, they would say, what are you looking for? And I would always say without fail, fit. The single most important thing is fit. And what we came to realize after we got onto the EOS platform and talking through our core values is that's what we had been talking about the whole time. Mm -hmm. Because if it's not somebody who shares our values, if they don't have an interest in being part of a team, having their core competencies aligned, all of these things, they're just, they're not going to be a fit, right? They're not going to be able to do the things in the first place, right? Those, those boxes have to be checked, right? They're not going to lead with empathy. They're not going to take care of people, right? So they're not the right people for us. So when you go through these things, right? And you go through your core values and you base your decisions on is this consistent with our core values? It really streams streamlines your decision making process as to what are we doing, why are we doing it? Should we keep doing this? Should we do something different? If that if it is something different, mm -hmm. what should that something different look like? And it gives you and your organization a, a, a gel that congeals and brings you together because it's easy to rally around those things. When right. and I see it in our our organization when people talk about specifically talk about somebody getting a win and we celebrate our wins 
So we do a little program we call RMO wins when somebody's won a big case or they've settled a big case or they've gotten a new client or they've gotten a new accolade or some sort of recognition. The people who promote the people to management will say, you know, this person led with empathy, right? This person was really authentic in the way they handled this really difficult situation, right? This person was zealously efficacious in knocking this case out in 30 days from start to finish and putting the client, you know, in a better place than, than we found them a month ago. So it, it gives you and your organization the, the language to be able to communicate consistently. Right. Nice. And I, now I know you're also, besides being a student of EOS, and I'm also student of EOS for my two businesses on EOS as well. But you, I, I know that we're also both members of Strategic Coach, which is very influential for me. Those who are watching this on the video can see I have a copy of Who Not How from Dan Sullivan and Dr. Benjamin Hardy behind me. And uh, it's a great book. And I guess I would ask you is Strategic Coach has a lot of tools. H how long ago did you initially join? I've only been involved with Strategic Coach since September of last year. So I'm having my second quarterly meeting. Okay. So All right. I'm, nice. I'm a baby. Brand new. I'm only, I'm, I'm in the first half of my second year. So I'm okay. also relatively new. Uh, but I guess I would say in your brief time with strategic coach, what, I guess, what has been most surprising or has been most transformational? Have you found most useful in the, in the tools you've learned through strategic coach? I'd, I'd like to add that I've, I've been reading Dan's books for some time before mm -hmm. deciding to, to get involved with strategic coach. Right. So some of these, uh, some of these themes I'd already been paying quite a bit of attention to. Uh, I think the who, not how concept, the book that you have behind you was monumentally life-changing for me. And it gives me a different lens to problem solve, right? Instead well, what's of, an example of something you've done differently because of the who, not how principle? Sure. And, and if you don't mind explaining briefly, what what is what is the who, not how principle? Certainly. Yeah. Who, not how simply stands for the proposition that when faced with adversity, with some sort of problem that requires fixing, you ask yourself, who is the best solution to this problem instead of how can I solve this problem? And it is uh, so many different opportunities in my own business and in just counseling friends and their businesses. But we hired a, a COO last year, mid-year, first outside C-level hire for the firm. And it's been tremendously growth driving for us because it allows us to get out of those seats, right? Out of the accounting seat, right? Obviously, we still have trust accounting responsibilities, those kinds of things. It's a law firm, right? get us out of different recruiting roles, right? A lot of the blocking and tackling that happens in business that our COO was trained and has tons of experience in, we're lawyers, right? And lawyers, we're not as bad of business people as doctors and dentists, but pretty near, <laughs> right? Not to offend any of the doctors or dentists out there, but you know, we have a certain reputation for a reason. So when it came time, when we came to realize as, as a management team at our firm that we needed more help. We needed bandwidth. 
right? And we would sit and go through going on the US, US model and ask ourselves, okay, what needs to be addressed? And then we would say, okay, how are we going to do that? And then the question would always pop up, okay, who's going to be responsible for that? And we always ended up running into bandwidth issues on some of those things. So what we came to start asking ourselves, and I read the book probably a year and a half ago, so we were probably on the EOS model for about six months, you know, started saying instead of, okay, how are we going to fix this? We really need to start looking at who else in the organization can maybe take this piece or that piece. And that ultimately led to us bringing in a COO who allows us to, you know, delegate and elevate into the things that we should be doing as opposed to things that we can figure out. Right. And I always relate it to, you know, wiring my house. Like I could rewire or replumb my house. I could, right. I could figure it out, but it's going to take me 10 times as long. And I'm not going to feel safe turning on those light switches or turning on the, the water faucets and knowing right. that, you know, it's going to work the way that it's supposed to. I'm not going to burn my house down or flood it. So, you know, it's a similar concept when it comes to who, not how is, you know, I'm not a trained accountant, right? I'm not trained in law firm financials, right? There are a lot of things that, you know, we shouldn't be doing. And it's, it's interesting because life experience, you don't always realize some of the experiences you're having in the moment you're having them. But I remember I was in Mexico for New Year's years ago, at least 10 years ago with Scott Painter, the former CEO of True Car. And I was just talking, he's a serial entrepreneur and I was talking to him about his businesses and how he starts the businesses and those kinds of things. And, and I asked him a very simple question, which was, you know, how do you do it? <laughs> right. Cause it seemed, I was still, you know, big law partner, you know, having a great career, having a good life, but it just, it intrigued me because he had started all these businesses had a lot of success. And he laughed and said, you know, that's the question I get asked most frequently. And I said, yeah, great. But what's the answer? <laughs> and he just laughed and said, you just do it. Right. Which for me was life changing uh, because it took all the mystery out of it. Right. And he continued to say, you figure out what you can figure out until you can't figure something out. And then you figure to Dan's book, you figure who can help you figure out the next thing right and you tap into your community and you know the people you know may not know but they probably know somebody who knows who you need to know who can answer that question for you right and you know it's you just do it right and, and it's a it's a challenge you know you're in what did you mention nine offices, nine offices in five four states, states four states you know it's a challenge um you know, when you're smaller, you can't, you know, where you need to delegate, you need to give stuff up, but you can't afford that COO yet right? because you're not, you're just not big enough. You don't have enough revenue to justify it yet or to afford it yet. And so I don't know if you want to say anything about it, but that there's just that catch 22 of like, you need more delegating, you need more help. Uh, at a higher level than just uh, an executive assistant, let's say, you know, but you can't afford it yet. And so there's that middle ground till you get to that scale and can hire that COO that what do you do until then? 
Well, I, I think that's where you go to your community, go to your friends, go to your consultants, go to your CPAs and ask the hard question. Because the reality is, is there are fractional resources available for pretty much any need. It's just a matter of finding the right person, finding somebody who fits with you and your organization for the right price. But there are always- Have you questions. have you used a fractional resource? We've used fractional. For, for fractional. what? before for a financial for cfo cfo role yeah nice i don't know if i've I mean, I, we haven't talked about this before but i i have an organization called fractional leadership which is a professional association for fractional executives both firms and solo practitioners and i have a firm of 12 fractional coos and integrators um so definitely very heavily into that space. So happy to hear you mention it uh, spontaneously like that. It was not pre-planned. Yeah, yeah, no, not pre-planned at all. No, I, I think the answer is that the, the resources are out there, right? And you just need to stop thinking that you need to figure it all out yourself. Right, right. And the investment, especially for a fractional, the investment doesn't have to be huge. You kind of get to dictate, right? With them, what the contract's going to look like, how long, right. how much time they're going to spend what the cost is going to be. And the reality is, and I think most people who've gone through this process would agree that once you go through and you do the delegate and elevate exercise and you start moving those things off, it frees you up to do things that are likely more profit inducing, more revenue right. inducing than what you're paying. So right. that's really the exercise. It's not how much is this going to cost us? It's how much is it costing us now? Right. 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 Exactly. Yeah. No, they, they teach that strategic coach also, you know, you're doing $20 an hour work and you know, how much, how much is your time worth when you're doing money-making work, talking to potential clients and make that comparison, you know, can, can somewhat make delegation easier. Mm -hmm. I want you to think of it as an investment in the the time you're going to spend making much more money than whatever it's costing you to, uh, to have that delegation, whether it's an executive level delegation, like we spoke about, or, you know, or, or a much lower level delegation, which also needs to be done. Very often we're doing minimum wage work, right? No. Yep. And that we very often find ourselves doing that. One last question. Um, I guess when you think about coaching and the coaches that you've had, um, you know, I guess if you could share uh, whether it's, you know, one of the most surprising things you've learned or gotten from coaching uh, or just, you know, I guess what, what benefits you've gotten, uh, from, from a coach or being coached. And if you, if you don't mind sharing about that. Sure. Yeah. I, I think the coaching that I've done and I've done more coaching in the last five years as our business has continued to grow and thrive than I did in the previous 15. And I think it's in part, responsible for some of the growth and successes that we've had because i think just personally what i've come to experience and realize is that the mistakes i was making in my business were similar to the mistakes i was making in my life and i think that goes to some of the things dan talks about right it's you know it's not just a business right we sometimes especially in this country have have the audacity to often think that, well, it's business and business is separate from real life, right? And it's not, right? The way you comport yourself in your life is likely the way you comport yourself in your business and vice versa. And going through and spending time with people who have 
experience in life and business and using their experience to help you understand how you can be doing things better, right? Even if it's, you know, just a jog to the left or a, you know, slight lean to the right, um, there, there are many small changes that you can make. You know, these things don't have to be earth shattering. They might be eye opening, right? But they don't have to be earth shattering. And I think it can lead to a better business, a better run business and a better life. And that's certainly what I've been experiencing. And I'm, I'm thankful for the people that I've worked with. I think they're wonderful people to start with, but just, I feel really lucky to, to have the opportunity to work with them and learn from them and grow with them. All right. That's awesome. Well, look, I, I really appreciate this conversation and what I was able to gain on thinking about, you know, scaling a business and using values and, you know, outcomes and really focusing more on who and, and how, who things, you know, who we're working with more so than how exactly things should be and letting the right people dictate how the details are done. Uh, you know, I think in terms of scaling a business and, and, and not having to micromanage because of that, I think is, uh, is helpful. The idea of the coaching strategic coach, EOS implementation coaching you've gotten is helpful. Um, and, uh, you know, and everything that you said about, about coaching and who, not how obviously very helpful. So, and of course, fractional executive help as a, as another way of bridging the gap between, you know, where you are and where you need to get to. Uh, so really, really appreciate it. Thank you for your time today. Yeah. Pleasure to be here. The answers are out there. We just have to go find them. Yeah. Ask questions, talk to people. All right. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. And again, that's RMO lawyers.com uh, for more on him and everybody else. We'll see you on the other side. Thank you. You're listening to win, win, an entrepreneurial community with your host, Ben Wolf.